Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Welcome to Local Zero with Becky, Matt and Fraser. Today's episode is all about the United Nations Climate Change Conference, looking forward to COP27 coming up in Sharm el-Sheikh and looking back on the legacy of last year's COP26 right here in Glasgow. We'll be hearing shortly from Dr. Roddy Yar, Strathclyde University's Executive Lead on Sustainability. Also joining us will be Manish Joshi, CEO of Strathclyde's Students' Union. Before that, though, a quick plea from us to do a couple of things that are completely free for you, but that help us out a really, really big deal. If you can, please subscribe to Local Zero so all of our latest episodes are automatically delivered to you to your phone or device on whichever platform it is you prefer to use. You'll be among the first to get to listen. And also, we'd love you to get in touch and tell us how we're doing. We're at Local Zero Pod on Twitter or on email, localzeropod at gmail.com. But before we get into, into it, just a quick Apology to listeners if you're hearing me and I sound a little bit different. I lost the connector that plugs my microphone into my computer, so hopefully I don't sound too weird. It's an exciting episode today, isn't it? I I mean, I actually can't believe that COP26 was a year ago. It feels like, it simultaneously feels like it was forever ago and only a few weeks ago. Yeah, it actually feels like this is like the first time we're able to really truly reflect on what happened. I know we've attempted to do this in the past, but it turns out it takes a year to have a bit of, you know, perspective on these things. Yeah, apparently so. Apparently so. I was disappointed when I heard about COP27, actually. I thought we fixed it. I thought we did everything last year, but uh, apparently not. Reflecting back on some of the things that happened, it, they feel, to me, they feel like they were a, a very long time ago because they just so far in the history but at the same time it feels like it's taken me this long to actually really recover and and look back properly just in time to look forward uh, for the next cop just just takes a year to recover yeah i mean fraser i mean you had a very busy time and you were sharing platforms with you know greta thunberg and others you know a year on can you still believe it happened no <laughs> does, no. does it feel real or? no it feels like a, a collective fever dream at this point i think 
I think Becky's right. The concept of time since it's passed is, is just nothing. And I feel like because it's such a big part of our work as well, if you're working in the climate space, you kind of don't stop mm. working on, on these things. So no. it, it never it never really winds down. I was really disappointed, Matt, to be honest, when I heard we were having a COP27. I thought we fixed it all last year. Yeah, I thought everything yeah, was agreed, yeah. really disappointed. You thought it was, but, yeah, the, the kind of the, the end of the, the, the trilogy. Or, <laughs> no, I, I agreed. And I mean, what, what occurred to me is that the folk who, you know, the, the good people at the Carbon Brief, for instance, and, and all the other kind of, you know, COP-focused individuals, whether it's the UN or Bayes and climate change committee for that you know bouncing from one cop to the next is is just relentless i mean how do you ever you're always either preparing for one but then after that then you're kind of making sense of what's just been and then there's a handover and our last episode and a shameless plug uh speaking to uh, professor jim ski you know he 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 thankfully kind of you know made sense of this said look there's some ki- not all cops are equal. Some cops are, you know, more copied than others. You know, so COP26 was a really big one. You know, Paris was a big one. Copenhagen was a big one. Sharm el-Sheikh, maybe not as, I don't want to say important, but not as major as COP26, but still some real big issues to iron out. I think it's really, really important to reflect on the fact that, you know, that yes, we have these bigger cops, but actually, as you say, Matt, it doesn't, just because we, you know, made some headway and we agreed the Glasgow Pact, at COP26 last year doesn't mean that that action stops. And in fact, reflecting back, I mean, I think it was almost a year ago to the date that we recorded our debrief on COP or just under a year ago where where we were looking at actually what where are we and what do all the commitments that, that have been made add up to? And they don't get us to where we need to be. So all of the commitments that have been made don't take us to a one and a half degrees temperature rise. And we have to see ongoing ambition year on year on year now. I was surprised to read in preparation for this COP27, you know, some, some of the things which were agreed at COP26 haven't you know, been executed. I'm sorry, I'm not surprised by that, but actually I was still kind of surprised by some of the facts. So for instance, one of the agreements from COP26 is that countries would come back with national carbon plans and targets and that only about 23 of the 193 countries so you know a fraction a small maybe an eighth of these countries have actually delivered these so far so many of these you know and and what we're days away as we record this or a week or so many of them haven't done the homework yet so that that's concerning. There's also questions about, you know, whether uh, countries have been, including the UK actually in the news this week, have been forthcoming with their, their kind of respective climate finance packages, particularly for developing countries and big issues. I know, Fraser, you've spoken about this in the past, you know, loss and damage for those countries, developing countries, which haven't maybe enjoyed the fruits of, of um, you know, decades of industrialization and, and you know, developed economies in the way that the West has yet are feeling all the negative impacts and some of the very worst negative impacts of climate change. So, so these, these are kind of perennial issues that are rolling through these COPs, but actually some of the things that are agreed at 26 haven't actually been, been done yet. Haven't been done and haven't been translated into national strategies that are strong enough. And I'm particularly thinking about our own. Fraser, I can see Fraser like desperately wants to join in this conversation yeah, and is terrified to come off mute because his dog's playing with a squeaky toy in the he's background. He's squeaking a toy in the background just as Matt teed me just up there. I was wound up, I was ready to go. And then he comes through and starts squeaking the loudest yeah. possible Yeah, he's, he's more annoyed than you are. Yeah. He's furious. He's absolutely furious. I think this is a key point. I think it's incredibly important. And, and people who have, you know, seasoned COP veterans 
will have been making this argument and feeling this frustration for a long time. What's also happened in that time is we've had the energy crisis ramp up. So when we were we were making the arguments at COP about climate justice, social justice, trying to spotlight that this isn't just the biggest issue that we face on the planet today, although it is, it's also, it's not just the biggest environmental issue, it's the biggest social issue, it's the biggest economic issue. And that's never been more obvious than it has before, yet we're still not acting in any capacity on any side. This is... Just yeah, just completely undermining this massive firebrand speech. Giving it hell. Yeah. Yeah. Hold on. Hold on. It has been wrestled from him. Okay. (laughs) Um, But not not only I'm not going to retake that point. I think this is important. Not only are we sort of trundling from one cop to the next, blindly sort of not doing the things that we said we were going to do. We also have this much this much bigger issue, as as we're concerned, at least in the UK. Bear in mind, cop being global. But we have this issue that makes the need for action for a just transition to net zero obvious at every possible level, right? From your household bill to saving the planet to global inequalities across. There is no counter argument for really for not doing that at this point in time. And we're still just not at the scale and pace that we need to be. So it's frustrating, however, knowing that we understand those things and that the anger is the wrong word, but the I, I guess the sort of the the emboldenment of of people in this space and the the wider public understanding is is something to take heart in. I think it's how we now capitalise on that. Now, now of, of course, there has been one major major change since COP twenty six, and that's been Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. And you know, I've often kind of thought about what what this means that the you know for, for countries' climate change plans or for international climate negotiations. And I think it remains to be seen what comes out of Egypt. On the one hand, many many countries are feeling the the pinch. That's that's a very very soft way of putting it. But you know, rampant inflation, escalating interest rates, you know, capital reserves from from companies to householders being diminished by the hour, and so you are seeing essentially less financial firepower to be able to decarbonize. On the other hand, you've seen countries move you know, with gusto away from gas, whether that's um, less so the UK, but certainly in the European Union, reducing energy demand, their, their target of 15% reduction, but also, you know, moving away from gas and relying on other forms of, of uh, electricity generation, in particular renewables, uh, nuclear, um, it, unfortunately, in some circumstances, other dirty thermal like coal. It'll, it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. Will you see countries wake up and say, look, Gas is not just bad for the climate, but actually we can't rely on this for geopolitical reasons. Let's get off it once and for all. Well, and I wonder as well if we're going to see that same sort of thinking, not just at national levels, but also at more local levels or community levels. And, you know, Matt, I know you've just come back from a week away by Loch Ness. I mean, you've been looking at how some of these frustrations or or maybe enhanced focus because we're now seeing climate being brought much more into our everyday lives through energy crisis, through cost of living crisis, you know, how's that playing out? A a very quick 
quick note on this. So we've we've done a couple of episodes in the past on um, what we were kind of terming green lairds and the the great kind of carbon land rush, where you've got companies, high net worth individuals, also trusts and charities hoovering up land in the Highlands of Scotland. And I, coming back to COP26, this is really pronounced in the lead up to COP26, where you had companies wanting to demonstrate that they were quote unquote net zero or you know or were offsetting their their emissions. So we went up to Loch Ness to, to actually meet some of these organisations which are, you know, have purchased land and are looking to rewild uh, that land and also sequester carbon. But crucially to understand how communities are being impacted there. A new market that's opening up because of these climate negotiations and, and climate action. And so communities really are feeling change, some of it positive, some of it negative. All will be revealed in due course. We'll have pods on this. Uh, so yeah, so we went up there to uh, see that. I didn't see the monster, sadly. Did spend a long time looking for it. But whilst I was up there um, uh, enjoying ourselves in the, the Highland Glens, Becky, you were on the One Show, I believe. Yes, I was. It was really exciting. I mean, it was a great episode of the One Show. And I have to say, like, my role was, was rather small. But the focus and to see the One Show you know, hosting Greta Thunberg on the sofa and getting out also into the rainforest in Scotland. Like, I didn't know there was rainforest in Scotland and looking at what was happening on the ground and with communities. And to see that, you know, live on such a popular show as the one show, like mainstream show, I think that was so exciting. Well, congratulations on being there. And uh, did you manage, did you get to sit on the actual sofa? No, no. I was, um, I met the team in Glasgow, just kind of on the river overlooking, overlooking the SEC where COP was, which really actually brought it fully back into focus for me. And amazingly, we had the most, it's been hideous weather in Glasgow for weeks now, but we got the most lovely day. No wind, bit of sunshine. It was lovely. Good stuff. And we should probably bring our guests in who were also present with us at COP26, Roddy and Manish. We'll also have a lot to reflect on and hopefully share some, some good memories. Hi, I'm Manish Joshi, Chief Executive of Strathclyde Students' Union. Hello, my name's Roddy Yar, and I'm the Executive Lead for Sustainability at the University of Strathclyde. Thank you so much, Ruddy and Manish, for joining us today. We're really, really, really excited to have you with us. As you know, this episode, we're really wanting to uh, look back and reflect on COP26, right? So that, so it's November time. I can't actually believe it was a whole year ago that COP26 happened in Glasgow and thousands of people descended onto the city. And what we really want to think about today is that kind of legacy that's occurred, um, the impacts that it's had on the city and of course on folk that are living and that are part of this thriving city. And also look forward to COP27. But before we dive in about this, I think it'd be really helpful to understand the journey that Glasgow as a city and that Strathclyde as a university and a massive part of that city have been on up to that point. Because of course, COP26 wasn't the beginning for us. So I'm just wondering if, if maybe you can both help me reflect on how important climate action has been for Glasgow in the years leading up to COP26. And maybe Roddy, you can kick us off with that broader city perspective, and then we can start to focus in on the university. Sure. Yeah, I think Glasgow is has been doing a huge amount of work to pull together all the policy and guidance work pre-COP. That, that's work that's I suppose post-COP has accelerated, but you, you'll be familiar with the climate plan that the City Council pulled together and which we were involved in through Sustainable Glasgow uh, in our work 
uh, trying to help the city and 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 help our own net zero targets to move forward. So I think you're right. It has been a huge amount of of work done pre-COP, but of course, all of that work has now got to be delivered. And I think that's where where the, the council's you know really working hard with others, uh, including ourselves, to try and move the whole agenda forward quickly. Sorry, whether that's happening or not is is another question. Before we dig into the city, just um. A lot of people won't be familiar with Glasgow's climate plan, so maybe you could just give us a bit of an overview of, of what that is. Yeah, the climate plan, I think, has got 61-odd targets within it, hundreds, hundreds, millions to cover all of the different sustainability aspects that are necessarily important and need to be delivered. So bringing together all that policy piece, as I said, into one coherent document, covering transport, energy, access to services around sustainability, infrastructure, all of those elements. So I think that's that's pulled together now in this climate plan. So that's what really where we're trying to help work with the city. And that's with a view, Roddy, to Glasgow becoming net zero by 2030. Yes, so net zero by 2030. But since COP, it's also now a climate city. So climate resilience. I think that's something that the language of net zero you know, we can go down a rabbit hole here with this one, but some people think it's part of net zero. Some people say, well, net zero isn't anything to do with climate resilience. So there's a narrative around making sure that that the, the city and region and its stakeholders think about the resilience because obviously climate change is here and locked in. So there's a huge amount of work going on in that. And of course, we're on the Clyde, which, you know, as sea level rises, this is, you know, a, a tidal river too. So yeah, I can imagine... Glasgow needing to be resilient into the future. Manish, I, I know you you were extremely busy during COP26 and the, the phone was ringing off the hook. And in fact, you were you were visited by none other than uh, former President Obama. But in, in the lead up to 26, COP26, you know, just a bit of background around the importance of sustainability and climate in the context of, of the Students' Union, but also from your perspective, the university. Yeah, I think, you know, the biggest challenge we had probably the lead up to COP26 was the Students' Union wasn't open. So we were living in the pandemic we closed our doors and in, in the 17th of march 2021 and because we were moving into a new building in the learning and teaching building there was actually no physical presence and obviously students weren't back on campus in any shape or form and i think one of the biggest challenges therefore in the run-up to that was student activism around that and you know student organizing around that you know certainly in terms of our campus i think in the run-up to that students had been really active i think we had campaigned and worked with the university around divestment in terms of fossil fuels, the university's investment portfolio, and that's an ongoing conversation around what more we can do there to really make sure that we're a net positive contributor with the assets that the university has, you know, and where, you know, funds are invested and um, how we do that. And so there had been actually a good head of steam from the student body around that in the run-up. And then I think we we kind of, we had covid and the impacts that's had on students and student life and, and society as a whole. And in the background, COP was kind of going on, the organising was happening. And we were fairly well engaged on the civil society front through the likes of Stop Climate Chaos Scotland and and others and working closely with the university. And that, you know, that conversation, I think, at university had probably started 18 months to two years prior to COP. Manish, did that take a little bit of the wind out the sails of, of students in terms of organising around COP26 and, and, and climate action in, in the fact that, you know, we, we were locked down for the 18 months in the lead up to COP26, but actually in the year since COP26, Omicron aside and, you know, various restrictions there, really it's been much, much 
less restricted over the last year. Was it a bit chalk and cheese for you? Has it been quite different or did climate action kind of bubble up in different ways through the union in, in, in the lead up to COP26? We have a climate emergency action group, which was set up prior to COP and has been has continued and it is you know fairly active and vibrant in that respect. We have worked really closely with the, the Centre for Sustainable Development and Sustainable Strathclyde. So we were about to open a sustainability hub on the campus. And that would definitely be a legacy for me from COP is the fact that sustainability and climate change really have elevated in terms of the university's outlook, the union's outlook. So there's definitely action. Actually, I think one of the, the main things is the action is much more coordinated at a kind of university and union level. So those conversations are strategic now, as opposed to having a group of students campaigning the university to try and move. The university is fully committed and on board with us and in many ways often driving elements of that conversation. I think the students, to give some perspective, I think it's just been really hard for students. I think, you know, our intake right now was born in 2004. Climate change is just part of their life. Like it's just a constant drumbeat that they've grown up with in amongst a housing crisis, an inequality crisis, getting back to university. So do they have the time and the headspace even sometimes to in amongst everything else that they're they're working towards. You know, I think there is a group of committed students here on the campus. I think there's a lot of students who care about climate change, but I also think there's a lot who are just so overwhelmed with life and just try to get through uni that they're maybe just not there in terms of like showing up for, for a rally or a demonstration. So I think we need to find different ways for people to engage. And I think we're doing some of that. You know, there, there's going to be credit-bearing courses coming on stream so you can actually you know, be committed to doing something on climate. We're working on stuff around activism and, and helping support that. And, you know, 60% of our students commute in. So how can we support them to actually be doing stuff locally where they live in Inverclyde and Kilmarnock and other parts of the, you know, in and around the, the West? So I think, I think there's much more we can do on that. And I think just finally on that point, I think one of the big challenges with COP, as we're talking back to COP, was the message to students was don't come in. Don't come to Glasgow, don't come to campus. So we put on a phenomenal, what I think was a phenomenal programme, working with the Lego Foundation, guys from Lateral North, Fortnite, Napier University. We had all kinds of stuff happening. And unfortunately, a lot of our students didn't really get to actually engage with it because the message had been, you know, we're moving learning fully online over that COP period. It's going to be locked down in Glasgow. Don't come in, don't come in. And I feel the people of Glasgow never got a really good opportunity during COP to really showcase our hospitality and what, we were capable of. I think that came alive in the middle weekend during the marches and some of the mobilizations, especially the youth march on the Friday and then the, the larger mobilization. But yeah, I kind of feel like our students maybe never missed out a little bit on that opportunity to really engage with what was going on, especially in the union, because we had, you know, you know, you've alluded we had Barack Obama come here, but we also had people like Lawrence Tubiana, who's one of the architects of the Paris Agreement, you know, other heads of state, various other people, as well as youth activists from, from around the world. I wish we were doing it now, actually. I wish COP26 was this year in Glasgow. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it was it was obviously a peculiar time. Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not defending, just looking back, this was kind of just before Omicron and there was this kind of expectation that COVID was going to be rampant during, and I remember it just tickering up, you know, as as we were there. And unfortunately, Becky, some of our colleagues, I think even got, had, had access to the blue zone and got COVID on day one and were out, out of the game for two weeks. But I hear what you're saying, man, and you had one hell of a, a programme on. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was amazing. And as you were just talking there, man, I was reflecting back and thinking just how different it is, I think, for a lot of students and younger people now compared to when I was at university. So this just wasn't really part of university societies. There might have been small bits and pieces going on on the fringes, but it just wasn't as central as, as it 
seems to be uh, nowadays. And I particularly look back on COP26 and some of the stuff that really stands out for me are those climate marches. And, and I wasn't there on the Saturday, the kind of bigger climate march. I was around on the youth march, not, not taking part because I was on crutches, but I was stood there in George Square. It's like everyone was rolling in and it was just the most amazing atmosphere. It felt like people had an opportunity to show what they stood for. And uh, talking to folk that were involved and really hearing their kind of passion around it, and I'm just wondering like, how important some of those activities were for the students, but also for other people that are really implemental and driving action. So we're already thinking about some of the other like key organizations that the university's interacting with and that are part of that, that broader Sustainable Glasgow initiative. You know, how important do you think all of that was in terms of trying to raise the ambition of what's going on or galvanizing action or in some cases creating new sort of forms of partnerships looking back on it do you think it really started to bring people together in new ways i think it did yeah i remember all of those marches i remember fraser on stage and greta and uh, and i remember businesses worrying about cop and you know the anxiety around what's going to happen do i need to put shutters up or are there going to be riots you know all of that essentially didn't happen there were some protests and i think that raised that did raise the profile and it's been you know if it did one thing, it absolutely, in my work, I can sense and I can see the evidence of that it actually did spur business, city and region stakeholders into, yeah, this is okay to work on this now. First of all, like, you know, it's a norm now. This is a new thing that we have to uh, embrace and adopt and tackle. And also it became a really important risk area emphasized by the media uh, and obviously all that's happened since. So I think it has made a huge difference. I, I still have to kind of temper that with the business as usual is back <laughs> because, you know, and that has a real impact on how we, we move forward because it, it is business as usual. We're seeking to go back to what the normality was pre-pandemic, however close to that we can get. But actually, we need to do something completely different to that. I'm sure everyone on this call will perhaps reflect in a similar vein to that. It's business as usual, but just with a bit more kind of emphasis on sustainability. Yeah, I think so. And I think that the the point on partnerships and the point that you raised, Roddy and, and Manish both raised in that a lot of this stuff now is more strategic. And we saw, if we step back just a second, at the time, we talked a lot about two different sort of cops, right? We talked about the cop that was happening in the blue zone, the green zone at the high level. We talked about the cop that was happening out on the streets, on the marches. And I think at the time there was a lot of frustration about the city's efforts to, to bring more people into the fold on this. When we think about the free bus travel, for instance, that the delegates had versus what citizens had. And it feels a little bit like, while appreciating, of course, great legacy, the partnerships that are happening, this is more strategic, it feels like unless you're in the climate space now, you don't really, you're not fully cognizant that COP27 is actually just days away, realistically, right? So Manish, I wonder if you have any thoughts on could we have done more to galvanize that legacy amongst, let's say, air quotes, ordinary people in the city or the people who were out on the streets? Because it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just the vegans, right? It was people from all, corn all corners of the city that were out there. Could we have done more to galvanize that? And if maybe there's anything that we can do now to try and reignite some of that spirit to drive the work that needs to be done, as Roddy says, to challenge business as usual. Yeah, no, I think you're 
spot on, Fraser. Previously working in the student union, I actually used to work around the COP process on civil society engagement. So I kind of remember turning up at COP15 Copenhagen in 2009, not realising there was 15 years before, you know, that people had been doing these things since Rio in 92 and this whole legacy. And, you know, I think that starts right from teaching kids in school about these things, right? So like there's a whole history here, you know, in amongst what you might learn, you know, we've just finished Black History Month there where, you know, my kids are coming home and telling me about Rosa Parks and things like that. And it's great. I'm really encouraged to hear that. But I'd also like them to hear, come and tell me about, well, Dad, you know, that summit that happened in Rio in 92 and it kicked off all these things. And, you know, the person on the street doesn't know about the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Should they know about it? I don't know. I think what they need to know is what is our government doing? What is our, you know, people... All problems are local problems, aren't they? So how can we bring this down to a granular level around what's happening in your local area? What's your councillor doing about it? What's what's changing in your school? I still feel like we're teaching our curriculum in a kind of post-industrial way. So for me, I think a lot of this needs to start with school kids and what we're doing around that. You made a point, I think, Becky, earlier on, just about like that togetherness of people, right? Community. I was at a gig last night and it, it was like, you know, it was a spiritual experience almost, right? You're with people. And we've got to a stage, I think, in the last 15, 20 years where we're not very often with people. And if we are, that's at work or at school or whatever else. So I think we need to really build strong community networks, resilient community networks, and connect people because then they'll start to care. They'll care about their neighbour. They'll care about their, their parks, their local wetlands, whatever it is. And then we'll get community action. And then folk will go, oh, aye, that feeds into that COP thing that happens that politicians go to. But we have to be sending those politicians with a mandate as well. And I feel at the moment... We really don't, it's disconnected. Our politics and what's happening in international fora, whether it's the G7, the G20 or, or COPs, are so disconnected from everyday people's lives. And so for me, it's about let's get back to that element of building community. Did, did you sense, managed from Roddy in, in Glasgow at the time, a sense of ownership around COP26 you know, from, from, from the average citizen? I mean, my, my, I was right in the middle of it, but occasionally my head would kind of pop up the parapet and I'd, I'd, I'd have these moments of self-reflection. I'd realise it actually felt like COP26 was something that was being done to Glasgow. It was almost like the circus kind of rolled into town and then rolled out. We're kind of seeing the same thing in Sharm el-Sheikh this time around for COP27. I, you know, I was picking up bits and pieces of conversations from folks saying, oh, you know, I'm vaguely aware of COP26, but, you know, it's because I've heard the bin strikes are on and they're happening because of COP26. And on the ground, did people care? Did people understand what was happening? And and was there any sense of, of ownership around COP26 at, at the time? Well, I could reflect on why. So I think people expect high-profile meetings like this to take place and to sort out you know, sort sort things out in that sense, and then actually make it real for people, so there's change. Uh, and as to manage this point at, at community level, and that, I don't think that's happened to the scale it needs to. Given where we are, I would have thought that would have been an opportunity with the pandemic and the the, the focus on health and well-being, and pol- politicians taking real direct action to to sort out a pandemic, to focus on that challenge, and to to tackle it coherently, which is what happened. You know, investment was made, right or wrong, and there's a whole complexity around what, what, who, who benefited and so forth, but ultimately society benefited from a focus. The mission approach, you know, Mariana Mazzucato was writ large in that pandemic, and it was very much about health, well-being, community, people, keeping everyone safe. But that hasn't continued with the climate challenge, which is still here and, and isn't going to go away. 
So I think that political link to community is missing. But what a huge opportunity that would be if we pivot towards it and actually enable people to see that's the framework that we've got. And this is how it's helping me with my access to services, my energy bill, my my flood risk in my village or wherever I live. It's it's because of that lot that came to Glasgow in 2021. Manish, did you find any sense of ownership? Has COP26 resonated with people? Do friends, family, colleagues, they see the Glasgow Pact and think, ah, you know, a bit of pride, I'm that... I own a bit of that, you know, that was on my on my patch. I hate to be cynical here because I think most people probably were like, oh, somebody stayed in. People stayed, I think the stories I hear are when people stayed with other people, either either people rented out their flats or they had people stay as part of the human hotel. Back to connection. So people are like, oh, it was really good last year because somebody stayed with me or they went to an event. There was, You know, and I think towards the end of COP, they did. I, I don't think there's any pride in the kind of Glasgow Pact. I think the politics bypassed the people and I think the talks, obviously, because they're very technical. And I don't think they were reported all that accurately in terms of the way the media reports on these things. They look for the headlines, right? So, you know, going into Sharm El Sheikh, we're, we're overshooting 1.5 and, you know, so those are the headlines. But I feel like there were some amazing stories. Like we, we had a day in the union where we had uh, Inuit do for, for World Inuit Day. Such a powerful day and people came and told their stories. I don't think we actually, the media and, and locally, did a great job of actually shining a light on all those stories that came to Glasgow. So the indigenous people from around the world who came, and I think it happened at some local levels, there's some great stuff went on at the Galgale and at the Centre for Alternative Technology and various other places, um, human ecology and stuff like that. But it was niche and it didn't break through to the mainstream. Roddy uses this great kind of turn of phrase, which has really stuck with me this year. And it's like, what is the purpose of higher education in a climate crisis? And I think you can take that into what is the purpose of, you know, education? What is the purpose of community in the climate crisis? How, we're not pivoting and we're not, there's no radical solutions coming forward. I don't feel like there is this kind of like, I don't think the people of Glasgow are tuning into Sharm El Sheikh going, oh yeah, now we've passed the baton on, like you might do even with, I say, a Commonwealth Games or an Olympics or something. Like, I, I think there's, oh, there's so many interesting points in here, but, you know, that comparison, Roddy, that you just said about the pandemic and kind of creating community and like, I mean, the pandemic was front and centre for everybody. It was like front and centre of our lives for a variety of reasons. But I remember like, you know, once a week, everybody standing in the street, like my whole street was out, folk were clapping. Somebody from one of the homes, like up the street, we don't, we didn't actually know this neighbor was out there like playing musical instruments. And there was a real sense of, you know, this was a key important thing going on in all of our lives. And for me, I, I'm coming back to this idea of like there being two cops because the talks that the politicians are having, they are very technical and you know, we, we recorded an episode of Local Zero just after COP26 where we talked about some of the successes and some of those successes were very, very technical successes that probably, you know, most people, I struggle to get my head around it working in this space. And I expect that there is that kind of real challenge because it's so technical, because it's so specific and detailed. But where I feel there kind of was an opportunity that perhaps was missed was that during COP and, and not for everyone, but for a number of people, it was that same sort of, you know, front and center in terms of that focus on climate being front and center in the same way we've had the focus on the pandemic being front and center. And I agree cynically or not, like I talk to a lot of family and friends and some of them don't know what COP is, you know, that it's just not part of their life really. They do, they do care about climate change though. They do care about their energy bills. They do care about a lot of the 
tangible things that I think are then what kind of trickles down from COP. But I do wonder, just thinking about this, you know, bring back to front and center, it wasn't just people. Like I saw it in organizations that were involved, you know, people from different parts of the organization that might not like in businesses that may not have typically in their job had climate as front and center during COP and the run up to COP, it was particularly for Glasgow businesses. And it's that it feels like that's kind of trickled away again. I mean, Ruddy, thinking about some of the businesses in the city that are absolutely integral to the delivery of Glasgow's climate ambitions. Do you feel that that's that's happened here? Like, do you feel like we're kind of missing a trick? I don't, actually. I work with lots of different groups, public and private, and the private sector is more switched on to this every day. There's no question of that because it's on the risk register. You know, stranded assets, resilience of assets, business continuity, young people, old people who want to go and work for businesses that are aware of this issue, taking some action, you know, respecting it, understanding it. These are all the dynamics that I think are are more at play now and becoming more and more, uh, growing more and more every year. That That is my sense, which is really, really good. <laughs> you know, that is, that's a positive, right? I mean, if, you know, we haven't ignored it and turned our back on it. I think it's, it's growing. Again, back to the thing: is it? Are we doing enough? You know, no, we're not doing enough. But it's a good start. We're we're at it. We're on it. We we want to know more. Where I was bringing all stakeholders that I work with, and putting, you know, trying to match up our capabilities in in the universities, you know, and sustainability response, um, with the centre, with with academic faculties, that was full. You know, it was. At overcapacity, people want to get into this space. They they want to take action. So I think um, it, it's going the right direction, absolutely, in the private sector and, of course, the public sector too. I would totally agree with Roddy's points there. I would just, I sit on the board of Scottish Council for Voluntary Organisations and just want to say, I think there's a real desire in like the third sector, but I think the big challenge for small SMEs and probably the third sector is access to resources and expertise and being able to, to put these solutions out. So I was just going to make a point of, I think a little bit like the climate negotiations, there's there's almost a duty of care and responsibility around knowledge exchange and knowledge transfers and being able to support smaller organisations to get there quickly because otherwise they won't. And certainly speaking for, for third sector organisations, I think, you know, there's a desire there, but they're often, you know, staffed by volunteers and people who, who have got loads of other things going on you know, because their their organisations looking after people who are homeless or on the front line of of trauma or whatever it is, but they need to do something on climate. They just don't know how to do it. So, you know, I guess one of my my things would be like if there are things that they do, and I think the university is a really good example of that. Like working with the local community, whether it's Townhead, Ladywell, others, to to try and do that knowledge transfer piece, but also to learn from them. Like what's the issues that are going on for you on the ground? So, yeah, you know, I would totally agree with Roddy. I do think people are moving. Certainly, COP has brought this the top of people's radars, whether it's strategically or through risk. Manish, I wanted to just bring it back just a, a moment to to our students, okay? So, you know, many of our listeners you know, hopefully are familiar with University of Strathclyde. If they're not, you'll be familiar with another university and some of the fantastic students that are moving through there. Sometimes when I'm maybe... Um, feel a little bit listless and maybe don't feel particularly anchored on the day-to-day work, I have to remind myself that the real value of what I do is not Whilst I'd like to think the research is valuable, actually the most valuable thing is is that new generation of students coming through because, you know, there's only one of me, but there are 
you know, hundreds, thousands of them. And if you can just, you know, plant a seed and send, you know, send these kind of fly my pretties kind of, you know, in various different directions and to do something meaningful, that that's really powerful. And I, I'm I'm having this creeping realization that that's a real responsibility on on my shoulders and and indeed uh, you know the rest of the higher education sector. So I wanted to get a sense from from both you, Manish, and also Roddy is where is the student base here at the moment? Where's their thinking? Is I know climate change typically is seen as a much more important subject for the younger generations, but um, you mentioned Manish about this kind of anxiety, this this crushing anxiety, almost paralysing is what I was kind of interpreting from what you were saying. But is the fire in the belly there? How is this translating into action? Are students looking at this as something that it requires sort of citizen action or are they actually going to make change through their work and studies? I'm just the, taking the pulse of the, the, the students' union, really. Yeah, no, I think, you know, and I think I was maybe slightly unfair to students at the start when I was kind of saying, like, we didn't have a lot of activists and stuff. And I think it's part of their DNA, like, of course, the biggest problem of their time is climate change. You don't need to convince them. You don't need to tell them that. You don't need, they know it. And so actually they're working on it. They're working on it right now in their courses. They're working on it through their projects that they do, whether they're engineers or whether they're in humanities and social science. So actually, in many ways, they're already doing the work. And we've got, you know, at, the, at Strathclyde, for example, we've got things like Strathclyde Inspire, which is focused on entrepreneurship and innovation. And we've got businesses out of that that are focused on climate solutions you know there there are spin outs on that there are um, folks who are working on sustainability issues and, and poverty and various other things so i think the students are very alive to it i think they are looking at the problems that are out there they're looking at employers and what are the employers doing on this issue because i think it's, it's about more than climate for them i think it's about the value set and where are the employers values aligned with their own values and i actually think the group of young people that we've got, and, and not just young people, the students in general, people are here to to learn in the context of the real world and the real world around them. And so actually I think, you know, we see stuff, you know, I think I'd like the students to push us harder. If I've been, you know, if I've been totally honest, I would like the students to push the union harder, push the university harder on the things that matter to them. You know, but, I, you know, I think we try to create spaces and places for them. So we've got the sustainability hub coming in the next few weeks, which will be in the Levy Tower, and hopefully that starts to create actual manifested spaces where they can come together and organize and then start to push some of these things. So I think it's just about giving them some time and access to resources as well. That sounds very exciting. Roddy, during your time at Strathclyde, have you seen a, a change in that student mindset? Or I mean, obviously, the, we've been through all sorts in the time that you've been at Strathclyde. Uh, yeah, I've been here seven years now. The changes I see are students realizing they've got a stronger voice, that they can vote with their feet. They will look at workplaces, having two young adults who've left, well, one's at university and one's just left. They will think about climate. They will think about social justice. They will think about ethics of organizations that they engage with, whether that's work or placements and so forth. But I think they look to us as a university, HEFE, to lead by example. They expect that we should be cognizant of these issues, taking action, demonstrating that this is important and is part of our value set, demonstrating the positive change so that they can be proud of that, I suppose, in a way, but also that that we create the skill set that will enable them to respond and understand and unpack some of these hugely challenging issues for them. So I sense that's the biggest change. You know, they're not passive anymore. You know, I'm old in the tooth of, you know, 
<laughs> had a long career and I've worked with students in other univers in another university. Um, they have a voice now, and I think they that's a an asset for them, but it's also an asset for us to use, as Manny says, to get you know to get our students out there and in in society making a difference. And just picking up on that leadership point, because I, I thought that was a really nice framing that you know this this focus on on our students and you know kind of like the youth of tomorrow, the people that are going to be leading this tomorrow, being more engaged, having more of a voice, but wanting to see that leadership from institutions like the university. I mean, looking forward to COP27, what are you hoping might come out of that, either at that kind of international level or what might come out of it in terms of driving a stronger leadership for the UK, for cities like Glasgow or for universities like Strathclyde more generally? Do you have particular particular hopes? I mean, Manish, maybe you could kick us off. Yeah, I think, you know, I think, it's like a massive trade show, the COP, isn't it? Like everybody's there, the researchers, business interest groups, NGOs, world leaders. And so there's an opportunity in that two-week period. There's a spotlight on these things. And I think, you know, hoping that we can use that both in terms of what we do here at the university to just keep the conversation going, kickstart the conversation. But, you know, we've seen this last couple of weeks, the need for political leadership. And, you know, I've always maintained that the solutions are there. Right? We just need to find the money and the political will to actually enact some of these things, right? And so whether you think, uh, you know, Prime Minister should go there or not, I think it sends a very strong signal about how important this is to the domestic agenda. And so I really hope that, you know, once again, that's an opportunity for politicians to kind of come together. You know, I think the planet got a pretty good shot in the arm at the weekend there with Lula being elected um, president in Brazil, you know, much needed for for the Amazon and various other things. And I think there's an opportunity to, you know, drive bigger political conversation over this next couple of weeks. And I think part of our job is to how do we translate that to our students so that they actually understand that what happens in Sharm el-Sheikh actually has a direct impact on what goes on for them and in their studies and, and you know, in the world, world of work that they're going to come into. Yeah, I think we need to take a lead. I go back to that. You know, I, I hope that someone from the UK turns up. <laughs> it, anyone. You know, <laughs> Just anyone. Well, you know, Alex Sharma, of course, you know, <laughs> Uh, you know, but do you know what I mean? We have to, the, the, the global north and, and the whole global north, global south thing. You know, respecting people, respecting their space and their place, you know, valuing the cultural diversity that, and the assets, of course, which we rely on for our transition to net zero is largely in the global south. And yet we, we don't respect it. And we have to use these conferences to, to really thrash out you know, reparations, whatever, you know, whatever issue it is, we have to be a, a nation that's, you know, a, a, a global society that's together, not uh, us and them. You know, that's, I think that's an ever-present issue, isn't it? But uh, how you make that real for society and people trying to battle with all these other issues <laughs> that they've got to deal with, but it has to be part of the dialogue and it can't be forgotten and just an, an add-on. It has to be embedded and integrated and just, you know, we, we kind of somehow cleverly make this stuff part of our day, day-to-day day activities internationally and, and nationally and locally. And is it is it fair to say, Roddy and Manish, you're breathing a little sigh of relief that you're not having to host another one this <laughs> this coming week? I'm a, I'm a bit sad, if I'm being honest, in terms of the adrenaline and the energy and, you know, 
I don't know, it's not every day you get into that with the Secret Service and the Met Police and host very high-level people. But at the same time, I think it's one of my favourite things where we ran a daily picture picture at the end of the, just outside the bar. And, you know, just hearing from students and ordinary people about the things they were doing around climate action, you know, that for me was fantastic. So, yeah, I'm a little bit, I tried to get the band back together to see if we could have done a bit of a programme. And uh, like all these things, everyone's busy on other projects and the funding wasn't quite there. But I'd love to have done a, a small programme even in the middle weekend, but we just never managed to to pull it together, unfortunately. So slight tinge of uh, sadness, maybe. Yeah, I, I would. I, I was great. I got to go to the Blue Zone. It was, it was you know, incredible experience. But my, my focus is on getting stuff done. You know, that's just the way I work. I'd rather be out there getting stuff, you know, making stuff happen. Do you know what I mean? That's that's my DNA. But we have to talk. We have to have dialogue, understand what we're trying to do here uh, and make it real for everyone in society, not the politicians or not the kind of delegations. We have to we have to work together at speed. You know, we have to get on with it. Well, you heard it here first on Local Zero. If things don't work out, Sharm El Sheikh manages more than happy to host the proceedings. That's <laughs> quite you. The door is I always open. It, isn't it? You have to get the most votes. You have to win in Sharm El Sheikh and then it comes back here. That's yeah. that's right, isn't it? That's right. And then Liverpool will get it. It always happens. <laughs> yeah. right. Well, Manish, Roddy, thank you so much. That was fascinating. Uh, welcome back anytime on to Local Zero. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to Local Zero. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Rodia and Manish Joshi. If you haven't already, go find and follow us at Local Zero Pod on Twitter to get involved with discussions there. And do feel free to email us, localzeropod at gmail.com. We absolutely love hearing from you. So please, if you can, take just two minutes to subscribe so new episodes reach you automatically. And if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This really does help to spread the word about the podcast and helps us reach new listeners. So until next time, goodbye. Produced by Bespoken Media.